0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Doughty. And today we're going to be covering our third installment in our Black History series. And the woman we're going to talk about today, Mary Seacole, is actually someone Katie blogged about recently. And we both liked her so much that we wanted to look into her life even more.
1: I love her even more because she is a nurse, as is my mother, and I have a lot of respect for the profession. So today we'd like to introduce you to Mary Seacole. She was born Mary Ann Grant in Jamaica in 1805, and she was born free and of mixed race. She was the daughter of a Scottish Army officer and a free black boarding housekeeper. And she says in her autobiography, I am a Creole and have good Scotch blood coursing in my veins.
0: And she gets a travel bug pretty early on. She takes two trips to England when she's young and um, gets her start in what would become her life's calling eventually, which is nursing through her mother. Uh, she's really knowledgeable about herbal medicine. She's actually called a doctress. Yeah, I, I like that term a lot. It's like when I call myself an editrix because I don't feel like just being an editor.
1: <laughs> she did marry, but it's interesting that he doesn't figure too much into her autobiography or even really the story of her life when you're looking at it. She does mention that he was delicate and that she nursed him through illness and that when she died, she didn't leave her room for days. And her mother died soon after that, so these were two big personal blows in her life.
0: Yeah, well, and it comes with money problems, too, because as a widow, she's not bringing in as much income, and eventually her Kingston house burns down in 1843, leaving her in even worse financial straits. But she resolved to work hard, and she
1: gained this reputation as being a very capable nurse, and it's funny, she says, one of the hardest struggles of my life in Kingston was to resist the pressing candidates for the late Mr. Seacole's shoes, which is just a little
0: aside that I love. Like, well, I was very much in demand, but uh, however, I said no. Well, and we were talking about how it's interesting that she doesn't remarry because it would certainly make her financial problems a little easier to deal with. But she wouldn't have been able to do all these amazing things that she goes on to. When she seemed to have a
1: very independent streak. She must have had something in mind. I think a husband would have been a bit of a hindrance. So in the 1850s, there weren't any formal nursing programs. Mary Seacole learned to care for patients during an 1850 cholera epidemic in Jamaica, which killed thousands and thousands of people uh, by watching and experimenting and gathering evidence on what techniques and remedies Seemed to work, you know, taking a rigorous scientific approach to what she
0: was doing. Yeah, this reminded us of our episode we did a while ago on John Snow and the Ghost Map, which is also cholera and also this very scientific approach to medicine, which is so second nature to how we think of it now. But not in the days of, of my not in the nineteenth century. Air. No, not at all. So she
1: goes off traveling again when she's through with this epidemic, which she really loved to do. And she is, of course, alone, which, you know, horrors for a Victorian woman. And she ended up at her brother's hotel in Cruces, Panama, which was a place that many California gold seekers stopped by.
0: And cholera has broken out there, too, in 1851. And there aren't many doctors around Two important takeaways from her time in Panama. She saves a lot of people, and she advances her medical knowledge. She even does an autopsy on a little boy who's died of cholera. She wants to know what what the insides look like of someone who's been ravaged by cholera.
1: And she says she learned a lot from that, too. She was one of the few who believed that cholera was contagious, and she also thought cleanliness was important, which, again... Like our ghost map,
0: yeah, not so much. <laughs> so this makes her a little bit different from your average nurse, who's usually under the direction of a doctor. She's got a broader practice. She's diagnosing. She's um, prescribing, you know, herbals or pharmaceutical medicines, and uh, she's even doing light surgery eventually. And this post mortem, so she's of a different mold than your than your average nineteenth century nurse. And she's extremely talented, but she didn't
1: enjoy her acquaintance with Americans in Panama, and she returned to Jamaica just in time to fight a big outbreak of yellow fever. But when the Crimean War broke out, she was convinced that she'd found her real calling. She wanted to go to the front lines and take care of the men. So we're going to take you on a little detour to understand a bit more about the Crimean War.
0: Well, the Crimean War ultimately breaks down to a lot of European powers against Russia, but specifically it's a war fought on the Crimean Peninsula between the Russians and the British, French, and Ottoman Turkish, later with the support of Sardinia Piedmont. So we've got all of these European powers uniting together and to understand why that happens, we have to go back even further, further away from Mary Seacole, sorry. But we've had the Napoleonic Wars at the beginning of the 19th century. And the great powers have gotten together and worked to rebalance the European states. And they want peace and monarchies, no revolutions, please, no republics. And so Russia... Just be cool. Yeah, just, just be, be cool, cool everyone. <laughs> Russia, Prussia, Austria, Britain, and France... All want different things, but they managed to come together and work out the Treaty of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars. And they establish a kind of shaky but still impressive peace, peace for the most part, for 30 years um, until the Vienna system <laughs> breaks down. So... This initial problem
1: is that the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which you know is this vast ancient empire. Really old, yeah. It's weakening and the other European countries are starting to butt in to support the various Christian populations.
0: Yeah, and we have issues going on between France and Russia that we're not gonna get into too much, but our main point here is that Tsar Nicholas I is seeing an opportunity to cash in on this breakdown of right. the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And he wants to exercise protection over the orthodox subjects of the Ottoman Empire. So this is the, the Christian populations we were mentioning. And um, he thinks that he'll settle the sick man of Europe, as he calls the empire, the aging empire, um, and carve it up. And he thinks that Prussia, Austria, and Britain will be into this. They'll stand behind him because they might stand to benefit too, but Wrong. surprise, <laughs> yeah, Britain and Austria are not interested in Russia controlling this huge contentious area, this area that links Europe to Asia. So it's right. important. And the Turks resist the Tsar. They put
1: up quite a fight, which I don't think Russia was entirely expecting. And they're supported by not only
0: Britain and Austria, but also France. So the Turks put up a fight and the Brits and French get involved in not just a diplomatic way. They're, they're still thinking that maybe we can all talk this out, but that's not gonna happen. They get involved after the Russian Black Sea Fleet destroys a Turkish squadron, and the British and French fleets are entering the Black Sea to protect Turkish transports, and this is important part we were talking about earlier, you don't mess with Britain or France's trading operations. No, they will fight back, and they will fight a little bit dirty. So by September 1854, we have all-out war as the Allies land troops in the Russian Crimea, which is the north shore of the Black Sea. And they start a year-long siege on the Russian fortress of Sevastopol. And that's where our focus in Mary Seagull is going to be. So over the next
1: year, we have some big battles, particularly at Alma River, Balaclava, and Inkerman. and there's a desperate need for medical help, not because there are a lot of casualties, because on that front, we're actually doing all right, but because of infection and poor hygiene. And that brings us back to Mary Seacole, who again, really wants to go to the front, but she's met with an obstacle Despite the fact that nurses are desperately needed, she's turned down by every single war office she applied to, including the one that Florence Nightingale headed up. And it was because of her race. Apparently that happened with a lot of black female nurses who wanted to go fight in the war. They were turned down everywhere they went. But if you think that stopped her, it did not
0: yeah, she makes her own way to Balaclava on her own dime and sets up a British hotel, which was kind of half boarding house, half sick bay. She went into partnership with Thomas Day, who was a sort of distant connection to her late husband, and stocked up on food and medicine and all sorts of supplies and left for Turkey as a sutler, which is um, somebody who provides supplies to troops on the front line. And she worked with
1: a lot of men who didn't want to go to the hospitals. But eventually she got a pass allowing her to be the first woman to enter Sevastopol. And the soldiers started calling her the Black Nightingale. Later, she moved onto the battlefields themselves. And she was known for wearing really, really bright clothing, lots of yellows and reds. Red ribbons on her cap. It was apparently a a very welcome sight to the men who started calling her Mother Seacole. And she really thrived there. This is exactly where she wanted to be, right in the middle of the action, doing what she loved to do best.
0: Well, in all her experience with hygiene and treating these tropical diseases prepared her for dealing with the infections and the horrible hygiene of the Caribbean War.
1: But the war ended suddenly. So... We know it's been going on with Mary. Let's switch back to
0: the rest of Europe. So by September 11th, 1855, our year-long siege of Sebastopol, the Russian fortress, is coming to an end. And the Russians are forced to evacuate it, and they blow up their forts and sink their ships. And the war sort of straggles on a bit in the Caucasus and the Baltic Sea. But Russia finally accepts preliminary peace terms in 1856 and later signed the Treaty of Paris.
1: There are some important takeaways from the Crimean War. One we got was from the BBC, which said in military terms that this war was a midway point between Waterloo and World War One.
0: Yeah, and that's because you've got the Napoleonic strategies, which, uh, on a side note here, this war was terribly managed on all sides. That's why there's so much disease and so much need for nurses like Mary or Florence Nightingale. But... When when you have these sort of antiquated military strategies, you also have modern weaponry, armored warships, rifles—at least for the British—intercontinental um, electric telegraphs, and submarine mines, and war photography, and even um, even war journalism, which is something that y- you've just. It goes without saying now.
1: Yeah, this was the first real media war. There was a Times correspondent, William Howard Russell, who was sending firsthand dispatches from the front line. That's a pretty big deal. We might talk about him in another podcast.
0: But of course, uh, the Crimean War doesn't sort out Europe's problems. Russia does realize that it better get its act together if it's going to compete on the same level as the rest of Europe. And also, Austria loses Russia's support because they haven't behaved uh, neutral or (laughs) they haven't behaved with complete neutrality during this war. Not at all. Um, So they've become dependent on Britain and France, which don't end up supporting them through the rest of the century. And consequently, we have Italy and Austria left prime for nation building and um, ready for unification.
1: So this is the collapse of the Vienna Settlement and of 30 years of relative peace. And we end up with this new six-power system, but that, of course, is also terribly unstable. And Europe re-enters war in 1914, 99 years after the Vienna Settlement. Perhaps you've heard of that war. But another takeaway from the Crimean War is the deaths. We've got 25,000 for the British, 100,000 for the French, and up to a million for the Russians. And a lot of this was because of disease and neglect. Yeah, not outright battle casualties. No, so what people like Mary Seacole were doing was really important. And after the war, Mary herself came into a lot of financial difficulties. She'd lost money from her war efforts since she did a lot of this on her own. And since part of what she was doing was buying supplies... And selling them to people, once the war suddenly ended, she was left with all the supplies
0: and no one to sell them to. She's not totally unappreciated by the Brits, though. And um, some people, especially those who have seen the service that she provided during the war, want to help her get out of her financial straits. Um, The Brits try to help her raise money to get out of debt. It, It doesn't go as well as hoped.
1: No, a lot of those fundraising efforts, you know, you throw the charity ball, and then it turns out you spent so much money (laughs) trying to set up the ball. Definitely had that happen before. (laughs) There's not a lot of money left over to actually give to Mary Seacole. But the publication of her autobiography in 1857 really helped, and Sarah and I think this is the most fantastic title for an autobiography, The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. And part of the reason her book is so notable is because It wasn't a slave narrative. It was the story of a free woman of color who was doing interesting, courageous work in wartime, which, you know, was considered a man's sphere. And she was doing it on her own because she was also a widow who chosen...
0: Yeah, as we were talking about earlier, she's chosen to have this, um, single life or herself. When she easily could have remarried. So that makes it different from
1: some of the earlier, you know, 19th century narratives we have from women.
0: The fundraising eventually swings a little more in her favor, too. By the late 1860s, some of the royals in London have gotten involved in, um, raising money and publicity to celebrate Mary Seacole. She died in 1881,
1: and while she was honored during her lifetime, her name dropped out of public consciousness after her death. Now, when you're reading things about her, it's pretty much always a reference to the black Florence Nightingale. Which is a—it's kind of a shame. Well, and it wasn't even a competition between the two of them. They did completely different things. Like you were saying earlier, Florence Nightingale did a lot more with bureaucracy.
0: Well, I was reading a piece by Helen J. Seaton. And uh, yeah, she was raising the point that it doesn't need to be a competition between them. And people will try to, I guess, defend Mary Seacole by saying, oh, she does so much more hands-on stuff than Florence Nightingale. But yeah, there there is no reason why there shouldn't be room for two at least two, amazing nurses during the Crimean War. We always have to pit the women against each other. Let's (laughs) stop doing that. They're completely different. Although
1: supposedly Florence Nightingale wasn't entirely too fond of Mary Seacole's work. But that's a story for another day.
0: So after Mary's short-lived Victorian celebrity, which extends a little bit beyond her death, she really slips into obscurity and doesn't have a major effort to restore her place in history until 1954, which is the centenary of the Crimean War. Um, the Jamaican General Trained Nurses Association decided to name their Kingston headquarters Mary Seacole House. And British recognition didn't come until 1973, but... Which is a bit late. <laughs> a bit late, yeah. But since then, we've had kind of a movement to... Um, Revitalized Mary Seacole's image, and she's almost become a rallying point for minority nurses trying to um, gain equal status. But we would like to bring her name back. So the next time you think of Florence
1: Nightingale, think of Mary Seacole as well. And that brings us to listener mail. <laughs> Which today is actually more of an in-person mail. A girl in Mrs. Barnett's third grade class told Marshall Brain, the founder of HowStuffWorks.com, that we were her favoritist podcast. So thank you, Fiona, for the fantastic compliment. You're our favoritist. You are completely our <laughs> but That's our favoritist listener mail so far.
0: And if you want to learn more about cholera and other epidemics you should go to the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com and search for 10 Worst Epidemics. And also, while you're online, check out our new Twitter feed. We're at Missed in History. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage.